Well, hello. Hey, hello to my MAFRA friends. I'm coming to you live from Warrigal Presbyterian Church, and thanks to my good friend Wes Jackson for videoing and uh, getting this all together for us. Uh, but it's good to be back with you to, to share some more on um, the book of Isaiah. So let's pray, and then we'll get down to it. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Isaiah. We thank you for his courage. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for the insights that you blessed him with that addressed the situation that he lived through. But we thank you too for that wonderful insight that you granted him of the coming Lord Jesus, uh, our true King, uh, the world's Saviour. And so we pray that as we read and as we think about these words today, that you would speak to our hearts afresh and that you would um, help us each in our minds to to resolve to to trust Jesus more, to love him more, to obey him more, uh, because he loved us and gave himself for us. And so we pray that you would help us to come obediently and, and attentively and expectantly to your word as we hear it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you've read Isaiah 22, and I hope actually that you've not only been listening to the, the previous sermons in this series, but, but read uh, all the bits that go between. In a book as big as Isaiah, it's impossible to, well, you, you could, but it would take a long time to cover every verse. Um, and, and so we, we're not dealing with every chapter and every verse of the book. Uh, it would be great if you would read those that fall in between. But this section of chapter 13 to 23 or to 27 uh, is a difficult uh, section. Uh, and, and it really does require that we think hard about it. Well, 2020 has been quite a year, hasn't it? Uh, we began the year with terrible bushfires, bushfires that seem to engulf a large part of, of Australia and they cause great grief and uh, death and, and loss. Uh, people's holiday plans were upended. Uh, the, whole, the, the fires just seemed to, to, to go on and on. And then not too long after they abated, we had the coronavirus that hit our shores and emptied our hospital, our, our, um, filled our hospitals and, and emptied our, our supermarket shelves and caused everybody to need, need to wander around in masks. And in both of these crises, bushfires and the epidemic, the word unprecedented has been used a lot. In fact, it's been used so often that it's gone off the charts in terms of the number of searches for it on the internet. And so back in 2004, 2015, to compare it to the number of searches that have used the word unprecedented has just gone off the charts in 2020. Were the bushfires unprecedented? I've read expert opinion that says, no, we've had plenty just as bad and they've started just as early in the year. Uh, there's nothing remarkable. Yes, they were bad, but there's nothing particularly remarkable about them. They're not unprecedented, say these experts that I've read. Other people disagree, but that's the nature of experts, isn't it? Um, what about the pandemic? Uh, is it unprecedented? Well, it is in my lifetime. I've never lived through anything like it. But if you have any sense of history, you'll realise that there's always been things out there that'll kill people, illnesses that, that strike in plague proportions and, and do terrible things. Are we living in unprecedented times? Not necessarily. And certainly, if you look at the evidence of history, it gives things a perspective. If you've only got your own generation to go by, well, it may be. But if you look beyond that, if you look outside of your own perspective, you'll find that things aren't quite as bad as they might be portrayed. When we come to the subject of understanding, we often use 
metaphors or figures of speech that have to do with eyesight or vision. Uh, we can say, ah, oh, now I see, if something's explained to you, now I see. Um, we talk about staying focused. We have the saying of a person who can't see the forest for the trees. In other words, they're so obsessed with fine detail that they can't see the bigger picture. They, they, they see the tree in its back, but they can't see that the tree is one of a huge number of other trees, which is called a forest, focusing on the fine detail and omitting the big picture, getting things out of perspective. That was the problem with the people that Isaiah was writing to, and it's a problem which afflicts us even down to today, seeing the small but forgetting the big picture. The details of the life of the people who lived in Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah was prophesying to, uh, they had followed their ancestors in finding great attractiveness in the worship of the idols of the countries around about them. That was one of their besetting sins. It was one of their major problems, which is why God raised up prophets like Isaiah to deal with them. But another of their problems was that they focused on the small print, on the details of life in that difficult part of the world where they were surrounded by large military powers like Egypt to the south and the west and, and uh, up to the north and east, uh, Assyria. And so the pragmatic, the obvious thing to do, it seemed, was to form military alliances with other countries around about them to grant them some measure of defence. So idolatry and military alliances with pagan neighbours were the details that Judah and Jerusalem went to as their go-to sort of formulas for making it through life. And both of these things distorted their vision. They'd forgotten that Israel had a place in God's big picture. Now, we need to sketch this out briefly. I think it's helpful to keep this kind of an outline in mind as you read any part of the Bible, but particularly the prophets the prophets weren't just speaking randomly, they were speaking in the context of the fact that God was doing something, not just for Israel, not just for his people that he'd chosen, but for the whole world. Now, the promises of God to the whole world began when God called Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, we read that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's blessing is not just for Abraham and his descendants, but for the whole world. But it will begin with Abraham and his descendants. In Exodus 19, Abraham's descendants are now known as the people of Israel. They've been captive in Egypt for 400 years, but God raises up Moses to take them out of slavery and into a land that he promises to bless as a, almost a new Eden. But in Exodus 19, uh, we read there as they're at Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, God, Yahweh, the Lord, speaks to the people and says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, notice there, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, these things were conditional. But Israel had been saved by God as his treasured possession but to be a nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they were to be God's representatives to take the message of the glory of God to the nations amongst whom they lived. They were to be his agents, his representatives, his ambassadors. Now in Deuteronomy 28, just before the people go in to, to receive the promised land that God has prepared for them, Deuteronomy 28, again there's this conditional state, phrase, 
If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, all these blessings shall come upon you. Now amongst the blessings, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 28 says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. And in verse 10, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So if Israel faithfully obeys God's command, they won't have to fear invasion from foreign military powers because God will defend them. God will cause your enemies to be defeated. And not only that, the nations in, in, the, in the countries around about will know something of God through the activities, through the behaviour of God's ambassadorial people and they'll see that they're called by the name of the Lord. So following the commandments was Israel's safety. That was where their security lay. Now, Israel's place in God's big picture also included a king who would be God's king, God's representative on earth, who was to be the one in whom the nations should find their security as well. God's king was the world's true king. Now, that's celebrated in Psalm 2, right at the beginning of the collection of the 150 psalms that we have. We find there at the end of Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, that's all the other world, world, the world's other kings, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Now the Son is the metaphor for God's king. He's the Son of God. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what's the way to safety? It's to take refuge in the reign of God's kingly son, according to Psalm 2. So God promises to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham. That blessing is not for the descendants of Abraham alone, it's for the whole world. God's people are raised up to be his ambassadors to represent his blessing to the world. If they live according to God's word, his commandments, they'll be protected. One of the blessings God has for them is protection from foreign armies. But the world will find its blessing when it takes refuge in God's kingly son, according to Psalm 2. Keep all that in mind. Now, Isaiah chapters 1 to 12 climax with a vision of a descendant of David who has an amazing rule. Now, David was the great king of Israel. The kingly son is going to be a descendant of David. Isaiah chapters chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, talk about a... a a shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse and a branch of his root shall bear fruit. That means it's a descendant of David because Jesse was David's father. And the reign of this king in the line of David is going to issue in global transformation. We see evidence of that. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. So in other words, animals that once had the, rep the, the, the relationship of predator and prey are going to be in harmony with each other. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 11 says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, in the book of Habakkuk, we read that the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. And so this, the reign of this king is intimately linked with transformation of the world. In verse 12, we read that he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So this king's reign is going to usher in transformation of creation but it's also going to usher in world peace as the nations are gathered into Israel and that's the vision 
that Israel was called to participate in, that by going to idols and by forming foreign military alliances, they were turning their back on because that was anything but obedience to God's word and his commandments. And that means that they were forfeiting their condition for his protection. But Israel was called to participate in that glorious vision of God. And so here they are, bewitched by idols, afraid of their enemies and forming illicit alliances. So on the one hand, their idols corrupted them. And on the other hand, the nations around about them lured them. And that was a recipe for disaster. And so Isaiah's chapter chapter 13 to 23, it's the next big section after 1 to 12, we find that there's a theme that runs through all of the different countries that are spoken about here, countries that are strange and foreign to us, I've no doubt. But we find that there's this theme that runs through those chapters, that there's judgment or blessing for those nations depending on their response to Yahweh's salvation. So Yahweh has saved Israel, now divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, uh, and the, the northern kingdom is on the verge of collapse because of Assyria. But uh, the blessing will come to the nations as they respond to Yahweh's salvation. Now, God's people then and now, you and me, we're faced with the same choice, the same challenge. Will we look around us for security and protection to all of the things that the world thinks make sense? Will we pledge our devotion and give our affection to the idols that the world worships or will we reserve our affection and reverence for the one true God revealed through his kingly son, the Lord Jesus. They're the challenges that face us, just the same as they faced God's people back in those days. Now, chapters 13 to 23 are very carefully structured, and the meaning that they hold for us can be identified by looking at the structure carefully. And so there's these 10 oracles, these burdens, these messages that Isaiah has to speak that concern the nations around about Israel. Now, it's difficult to see a very obvious reason for their arrangement, but some people have speculated on what might be the case. So John Oswald, in his commentary, says that uh, the oracles run from Babylon in the east to Tyre in the west. Now, Babylon was a a, a coming military power, but a very wealthy civilisation, and Tyre was a a very wealthy civilisation as well. So east and west of of, of God's people was wealth and power, and it may be that that those two nations bookend these oracles for that reason. But Alec Matia, an Irish commentator, who's written a great commentary on the book of Isaiah, this is his suggestion. He says, if we think about the geography of where God's people lived in Palestine or Israel, as it was called, Canaan, uh, these 10 oracles uh, have a geographical orientation. The first of them in chapter 13 to chapter 14 concerns Babylon. The second Philistia, that's where the Philistines come from, uh, so down to the, the south and the west of Canaan. Uh, the third oracle is about Moab in chapter 15 to 16 to Israel's east. And then the fourth oracle concerns Damascus and Israel, so God's northern people in chapter 17 to 18. The fifth concerns Egypt, the traditional rivals, the enemies from which uh, Israel once escaped. So you've got Babylon, the coming captors, We're going to see that later on in Isaiah. You've got Egypt, the previous captors. They're at the top and tail of the first group of five. But then the second group of five doesn't call Babylon Babylon outright. It uses the descriptive title, the wilderness by the sea or the wilderness of the sea. We'll come back to that later. The second oracle concerns Juma or Edom. 
the uh, the eighth oracle, the third in this second cycle, concerns Arabia. The fourth, and notice it's fourth in both of the two five, the, the two groups of five, is the Valley of Vision, which can only be Jerusalem. So again, it's a descriptive title, and again we'll come back to that later. But this, uh, the fourth oracle in this second cycle of five concerns the Valley of Vision or Jerusalem, and then the tenth is Tyre. So Babylon in the east, Tyre in the west, two great and, and powerful and wealthy nations. Uh, but then at number four in each of the five list, five the groups of five, you've got God's people. All of these countries had in common that they'd been threatened by or conquered by Assyria and all of them were potential allies of Judah so they had that lure that attraction perhaps Judah says we can find help from these in forestalling the advance of the Assyrian conquerors so what's Yahweh's purpose well he makes it quite plain at the beginning of this set of oracles and at the end so the oracle to Babylon the first oracle uh, in chapter 14 verse 26 Yahweh says, this is the purpose that he's purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Remember God's picture, big picture, is to bring his blessing and his salvation to the whole earth. Not just to Israel, not just to those people he's made the covenant with, but to everyone in the end. This is his purpose. Well, at the end of these oracles, the oracle to Tyre in chapter 23, uh, we read in verse 8, who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were honoured of the earth? Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonour all the honoured of the earth. The message overall of these chapters from chapter 13 to chapter 23 is that security is to be found only in Yahweh. To turn your back on Yahweh, to reject him, to continue to oppose him, means that you'll come under his judgment. To come under the rule of Yahweh, to obey his covenantal commandments, is to find his blessing and to enjoy his security. That's the promise to the nations that are described in these ten oracles, and it's the one that's put quite forcibly to Judah in the one that we're looking at today. And so we're looking at chapter 22, verses 1 to 25. I hope you've read uh, this, this chapter. Uh, we, we haven't got time to refer to it all in detail, but, but please have it read. Um, if you haven't read it already, hit pause and, and read it now. But um, we can call this section the, sh- the folly of short-sightedness. It's the vision problem. And so what we find in verses 1 to 4 is that Jerusalem is complacent. They're complacent about a destruction that they can barely imagine, but which Isaiah has come to tell them about. They're carrying on and uh, we're told there, the the question he's asking in verse 1, what do you mean that you've gone up all of you to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. So they're celebrating. They're celebrating wildly. Now notice that this is... The language that's used here combines both present tense and future tense, but mixes it all up as though these things have already taken place. That's the prophetic past tense. Because you see, when God says something will happen, it's so certain that it will happen that it can be described by the prophet using language that says it already has happened. And that seems to be what's happening here. This is a certain future that's coming on God's uh, foolish people. 
So the question that Yahweh asks them is, what business are you rejoicing when disaster's on the horizon? Now, it may be that the occasion that they were celebrating was the defeat of the northern kingdom, after which Assyria retired. They, they went back. And, and, and so they may well have been thinking in their complacency, well, the northern kingdom got what was coming to them, but we're better than that, and Yahweh won't destroy us because we are where the temple is. So they're saying, in effect, we survived. And so their short-term celebration that's described here masks their real need because they've got no intention of celebrating by quitting worshipping idols or by making or ceasing to make foreign military alliances. And so when Ezekiel is prophesying by the time that Judah had been destroyed and taken captive into Babylon, he actually acknowledges in chapter 23, verse 11, that Jerusalem became more corrupt than Samaria. So it wasn't any goodness on their part that was keeping Yahweh from punishing them at this point. And so we find that the prophet weeps. Let me weep bitter tears, he says. Do not labour to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Isaiah knows what's coming and he knows why it's coming, but he can't get these foolish people to listen because they're so intent on their celebration. Well, we find that their complacency about Jerusalem's looming destruction that he's warned them of will turn eventually to tumult. Their celebration will turn to tumult, the tumult of warfare. And these are the concerns of verses 5 to 7. The Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. There's that enigmatic title again. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. So Yahweh has a day of judgment. It's on the way. And so the noise of warfare and confusion is going to replace the noise of their foolish celebrations. We don't know who's going to bring this judgment on. We don't know who's going to bring the walls down. We don't know who's going to trample all over the city yet. We're not told, but there's a hint. We find in verse 6 a reference to Elam, and they were a Babylonian ally. It may be that Kia is Media, which is a, another way of saying the Persians, who at that at that time were under the rule of the, the Babylonians. We're not sure about Kir, but we do know about ba Elam. They were Babylonian allies. And that's a, a hint. It's a foretaste of what's to come and what will become clearer later on. Because Isaiah was writing at a time when Assyria was the top dog. Babylon was still to come in the future, a fair way off in the future, but they will replace Assyria as the chief threat to God's people as, as Isaiah's prophecy goes on. So Babylon's emerging and Isaiah is prefiguring here the siege which will eventually cause Jerusalem's downfall. And so verses 8 to 11 continue the theme. So we've seen complacent Jerusalem's destruction is going to turn celebration to tumult. Why? Because they didn't turn to Yahweh. They didn't look to Yahweh. Remember, vision is a very important thing throughout this little series of, of verses. So God's promised protection in verse 8 is going to be removed. He's taken away the covering of Judah. Now remember in Deuteronomy 28, the protection for God's people was conditional on their obedience. They had to continue to listen to God's word and obey it. They had to be faithful in keeping his commandments if they were to be protected from the enemies around about. But what they did, instead of looking in faithfulness to Yahweh, their saving God, they looked for protection to human means. So they did the logical, pragmatic thing, but not the godly thing. And so we find that they looked to weapons in verse 8. Uh, in that day, you look to the weapons of the house of the forest. We're not quite sure what the house of the forest is, but nonetheless, they armed themselves. 
Then they increased their fortifications. Verse 9 says that they saw the breaches of the city of David were many and you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the walls. So the walls had been broken down and so they took to smashing up the, the houses that were near the wall to rebuild the wall. So they got weapons, they got fortifications. But as well as that, they adopted a very clever strategy. Now Hezekiah the king, we read about him in Second Kings and in Second Chronicles, and we read there that he closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. Now Jerusalem's water supply was outside of the city walls, the Gihon Spring, and so Hezekiah commissioned the, the excavation of an amazing tunnel, a tunnel which is still in Jerusalem to this day, which people can visit. Uh, and he brought the water from outside the city into the city through this engineering marvel, what's come to be known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a favourite destination of tourists to Jerusalem even today. And so it winds from outside the city walls, as they were at that time, and it terminates at what's become known as the Pool of Siloam, which is famous from the stories of the Gospels. So Hezekiah's tunnel represented military strategy, and it was, it was a very wise military strategy, but look at how Yahweh regards it. Verses 8 to 11 tell us, In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city were, of David were many. So with their eyes they see the problem, and with their mind they come up with a, a solution, a pragmatic solution. But the problem is they did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Jerusalem has a vision problem. Their eyes are on the immediate, their eyes are on the detail, but they're ignoring Yahweh and they're ignoring their part in his big picture, his great purposes for the world. So verses 12 to 14, we've seen that complacent Jerusalem is facing destruction and it's going to turn to celebration. It will turn their celebrations to tumult because they didn't look to Yahweh. And failing to look to Yahweh is a sin that can't be forgiven and it won't be forgiven. And so verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So Isaiah has the uncomfortable task of speaking to hard-hearted people who will not turn from their idolatry and from their pragmatism. They won't turn and so they're facing judgment. Their self-reliance and their indifference was not something that God could, uh, could excuse and it was not something he would forgive. We mustn't presume on God's kindness. We must not. God is king, God is sovereign, God is powerful and our sin offends him. And if we continue in it, then it's within his rights as king and sovereign to, to do something about it. And these people were ignoring him. They were casting his word behind their back. They were disregarding it. Their self-reliance and indifference was not something he would overlook. Now, making sensible decisions is a good idea. So Hezekiah digging the tunnel, it wasn't in itself sinful. Nehemiah, we read a, a later story of, of, um, of uh, after the exile when people have come back to Jerusalem and again they're in trouble and again the walls were at risk and so Nehemiah sets about rebuilding the walls and, and he prays to God, verse chapter, Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 9, we prayed to God and set a guard as a protection against them. So he prayed, he did the spiritual thing but he also did the practical thing but he didn't do practical things at the expense of the spiritual, they each worked hand in hand. 
God gave him the strength by his prayers to do what needed to be done. Hezekiah's tunnel in itself wasn't sinful. It's what it represented. And that's that self-sufficiency. So Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It was the people of Jerusalem who thought that they could solve their own problems through their own political allegiances and who had no intention of giving up on their idolatrous practices. What they should have done was combine pragmatism with prayerfulness. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So verse 12, uh, in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. That's what should have happened. They should have been weeping aloud for their sinfulness. They should have realised that according to the preaching of Isaiah, they were subject to judgment. They should have put on the harsh, harsh closing of, of sackcloth. They should have shaved their heads of baldness and, and made vows to, to do it better next time with God's help. That's what should have happened. But what actually happened was drunken revelry, feasting. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They had no heed for tomorrow. They said, well, if we're going to die, then let's bring it on but let's have a good time while we wait. They could have turned, but instead they kept going relentlessly. So what's the message out of all this? Well, the message is that Yahweh is the world's ruler, not just Judah's, not just Israel's, but the world's ruler. Even Judah's allies and enemies must submit and will one day submit to him. So what they will would do one day, Judah should have been doing now. And so faith in Yahweh's purpose is not in foreign policies. That's where Jerusalem's true protection lies, according to Bill Dumberley, Australian scholar. Complacent Jerusalem's destruction turned their celebrations into tumult because they didn't look to Yahweh, and that was a sin that couldn't be forgiven. They were short-sighted. They'd taken their eyes off Yahweh's big picture. They were vision impaired. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. And so verses 15 to 25 concern two men, Shebna and Eliakim. And they're case studies. They're Judah in miniature, really. Judah as it is and as it should be. Shebna and Eliakim were court officials under King Hezekiah. You can read about them in 2 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 19. But what we find here is Shebna is a man of unrepented pride. He is intent on building an elaborate tomb for himself, a tomb befitting of a king. He's not a king but he wants to outfit himself with a, a tomb befitting of a king. But Eliakim, on the other hand, is a, an example of a person who God has honours for his humility. And so to compare the two, read, read the verses yourself, but, but compare them this way. Shebna was the steward over the king's household, we read. Eliakim, we don't actually read much about him at all, what he was doing. But Shebna was the steward. He was number one man over the king's household. We, regard, we, we read of him that he was self-regarding in regard to his tomb and, and his chariots in verses 16 and 18. Eliakim, on the other hand, was a servant of Yahweh. Uh, in verse 20, verse 20, he was a father to the people. So he had a fatherly regard for God's people. Shebna is going to be treated like a ball, which is a symbol of instability. He's an unstable figure in verse 18. On the other hand, Eliakim... God's going to establish him like a peg, which is stable and dependable, a peg in a wall. Uh, Shebna is going to end in disgrace in verse 18. Eliakim is going to be honoured by God in verse 23. 
Shebna is going to be deposed by Yahweh. Eliakim will be fixed in place by Yahweh. Now we read, at least in the short term, that these things came to pass to an extent. And so in Isaiah 36 verses 1 to 3, we read of Eliakim and Shebna. And by this time, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was over the household. He'd taken over from Shebna. Just as Isaiah prophesied earlier, Shebna's been reduced to the secretary. Where the worst things happen to him later, we're not told. But at least at this point in the story, later on in Isaiah, we read that quite literally Eliakim the faithful had been replaced, had replaced Shebna, the, uh, the self-serving. So Shebna is a picture of what Judah is and Eliakim is a picture of what Yahweh requires. Shebna, self-regarding, unstable a disgrace, who will be deposed as Yahweh judges him. Eliakim, a servant of Yahweh, a gentle one who cares for others, a figure of stability and honour who's been put there into his place by Yahweh himself. Now what's this valley of vision? What does it mean to call Jerusalem the valley of vision? Well, remember that there's 10 oracles in chapters 13 to 23, and they're in these two groups of five, that Babylon is at the head of each of the groups of five. So Babylon is named uh, in, in chapter 13, the, the oracle of the Lord concerning Babylon. But the first oracle of the second group is addressed to the wilderness of the sea. Now, we can work out from reading that oracle in chapter 21 that it must be Babylon that's being addressed. So why is it called the wilderness of the sea? You see, Babylon was anything but a wilderness. It was a large, prosperous city that was in what's called the Fertile Crescent. It was surrounded by a very fertile plain. So Babylon was not a wilderness. Well, what about the Valley of Vision? The, uh, the fourth vision in the second cycle of five concerns Jerusalem. Obviously, why is Jerusalem referred to as the Valley of Vision? Jerusalem was built on a mountain. It was anything but a valley. It had valleys around it, but Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. Well, one of the conclusions that scholars have come to is that just in as much as calling Babylon the wilderness of the sea was ironic, so too is this description of Jerusalem as the valley of vision. Because as I've already said, their vision's been impaired. They're looking to the wrong things. They're not looking to Yahweh. They're looking to idols and foreign military alliances. So they're a valley, not a mountain, and their vision is poor. Isaiah 22 verse 14, remember, says, The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. So they're in trouble if they don't change their ways. But Isaiah 42, later on in his prophetic teaching, he says, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. He says the people he's writing to are blind. They have no vision. And so Barry Webb, in his Bible Speaks Today commentary, he says this, The people of Jerusalem are blind to the Lord's purposes. Isaiah sees them clearly and weeps. We saw that in verse 4. They've become like the nations. The nations that they were supposed to represent Yahweh to, they've become like them. They've become blind like the idols that they find so attractive. It's incongruous, isn't it, worshipping gods of metal and stone and wood? Isaiah absolutely pillories that idea, that idea from chapter 40 onwards. 
He has some bitterly sarcastic poems about the stupidity of worshipping idols. And in doing that, he echoes some words from Psalm 115. Psalm 115 verses 4 to 8 speaks of those who worship idols. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And that's Judah's fate. They've become like what they worship. So G.K. Beale, Greg Beale, has written a, a wonderful book on the theology of idolatry, a scary book in some ways, and he calls it We Become What We Worship. And that's as true for us in our generation as it was for the people that Isaiah was speaking to. The easiest thing in the world is to read the Bible and think of everyone else to whom it applies without taking it to heart and seeing that it applies to us. We become what we worship. People who worship idols will become blind and deaf and dumb by worshipping things that can't speak and see and talk. Jerusalem had a vision problem. You know, there's another English proverb, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And that seems quite appropriate in application to Jerusalem at this time. They didn't want to see. They preferred to keep on with their career of idolatry and foreign military alliances rather than bend the knee to Yahweh, their saving God. So complacent Jerusalem, they were going to be destroyed and their destruction would turn their celebration to tumult because they didn't look to Yahweh and that was a sin that couldn't be forgiven. And we see pictures of that in Shebna and Eliakim. Isaiah 22 verse 14 has the, the, the stark warning, the very stern warning, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. It can't be forgiven, self-reliance. Turning your back on God cannot be forgiven. We must repent of it. Now we find something roughly similar in the New Testament where we read in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. So to continue in a career of sin leads to Yahweh's inevitable judgment, which will result in eternal death and separation from God. But Paul goes on in Romans 3 to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So death and hell and punishment are not inevitable for anyone who'll turn away and look to Yahweh, look to the God of salvation. But if we continue in our rebellion and our hostility and, and rejection of his word, then we have that terrible fate awaiting us. See, Judah or Jerusalem or Zion, however you want to speak about God's people that Isaiah was prophesying to, they'd been corrupted by their worship of idols. They'd been lured by foreign military alliances, which is a sign that they'd stopped depending on Yahweh. They'd stopped listening to his word. That was the situation confronting God's people then. They'd become blind to the activity of Yahweh and to his requirements, his demands, his righteous demands on their life. But what, what about God's 21st century people? What about us? How does this apply to us? Well, you see, the thing is we're prone to idolatry too. It's the number one sin, really, attaching ourselves to something other than we should. Uh, when we turn good things into God things, when we allow our affections and our devotion to be placed on something other than the true God. Jesus, in his very famous story of the sower and the soils, 
he says that the third soil, the, the, uh, the weedy soil, when he explains it to his disciples, he says that, that the weeds represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things and they enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's Mark 4.19. The cares of the world, the things that the world cares about, the obsessions, the priorities, the demands that the world gives into so readily, the deceitfulness of riches, the idea that we can secure our life by making ourselves wealthy, to make ourselves comfortable, to buy ourselves luxuries. If we're looking for meaning, if we're looking for security in those things, we've given in to the idols that our world worships, the desires for other things, things other than God's big picture of the gospel being taken to all the nations so that all the nations can enjoy the benefits of his salvation now and in eternity. That's Jesus' diagnosis. But the Apostle Paul, writing in chapter 12 of the book of Romans, has this appeal. He's explained the wonders of the gospel to them in the first 11 chapters, and then he turns at chapter 12 to outline the practical implications of being saved by Jesus and living for him. And so he says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Isaiah was speaking to a complacent people, a people that had turned their back on Yahweh and his commands, and by doing so they'd forfeited his protection. They'd preferred the idols that couldn't see or speak or smell or walk or do anything, and they'd become blind and deaf and dumb like them. They'd symbolised their lack of attachment, lack of devotion, lack of reliance on Yahweh by making foreign military alliances. They were looking for things other than Yahweh. And we do the same when we worship the idols of the world in which we live. Our focus needs to be on God who's revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, finding salvation in Christ alone, finding satisfaction in worshipping God alone, ceasing to be conformed to this world and its priorities. So the question as we finish is, what or who are you looking to? Jerusalem had a vision problem. Their vision had been impaired. They weren't seeing clearly because they'd ceased to look to Yahweh. Who are you looking to, really? Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we confess that very often we look to other things. We look to our family, those we love, our friends. We look to our job. We look to our hobbies. We look to wealth and luxury and pleasure. We look to all sorts of other priorities and they crowd you out of the place that you should occupy alone in our life, first place, first place in our affections, first place in our worship. We ask that you would forgive us, please. And we pray that you would redirect our gaze so that we look upon you, our God and our King, our Creator and our Redeemer. We thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die to save us from a wretched eternity of separation from you, where if we'd been left alone, our sins would have resulted in our death. 
And yet in your mercy you've revealed yourself to us through the Lord Jesus and have made plain to us the way of salvation by confessing our sins and turning to Jesus in faith. And so we pray that as we have turned, we would keep turning and we would keep looking to Jesus each and every day. Please keep us from being conformed to this world and all that it holds dear and instead conform our thinking to the world to come and your priorities and your values. And we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and came from heaven to save us. And we pray in his name. Amen.